Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all so much for joining us today. So I'm really excited about uh, today's episode. We are really, really lucky uh, to have Jim O'Shaughnessy on with us today. So for those of you who don't know about Jim, uh, Jim is a quantitative investor or a quant. So he has been investing for, for decades now, following the quantitative style of investing. So essentially building algorithms to look at hard data and uh, come up with uh, strategies uh, based on quantitative methods, uh, studying correlations and statistics and all these different techniques to decide when to buy stocks, when to sell stocks, how to rebalance and, and things like that. And he's been super successful at it. He's the founder of uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. And um, so one, one of the things I really like about uh, OSAM uh, is that uh, they don't have to share anything they do with, uh, with, with any of us, but they make sharing uh, an important part of what they do. So uh, they, they're not going to tell you what their uh, uh, proprietary trading strategy they assign to uh, each individual factor or some, something like that. Uh, but the general principles, the general concepts behind how they work, uh, some of the key results that they found by doing tons of research across companies, across sectors, all of that, they try to make as much of it available publicly. They try to educate as many people as possible. And you, you guys know that I'm an educator at heart. And when somebody goes out of their way, uh, some successful practitioner, when a successful practitioner goes out of their way to also be a great educator, I, uh, I really have admiration for that. And so I, I really like the work that OSAM is, is doing in this area. And some, some of you may know Jim from uh, the Infinite Loops podcast. I, I simply love his podcast. I, I listen to almost every episode. Um, if, if you want to get started with a couple of episodes, my favorite ones are the ones with uh, uh, Tim Urban and uh, also Rory Sutherland. They're they are both wonderful episodes. Rory, I think, has appeared mo more than once. I, I, actually, I think Tim has also appeared more than once on, on the podcast. So, so Jim... Uh, thank, thank you so much for um, doing the Infinite Loops podcast and giving us access to such a wide array of great thinkers on almost every topic imaginable. It's su such a great podcast. I, I really love it. Um, and Jim has also written this very nice book called What Works on Wall Street. Um, so um, he, it, it's always difficult for an advanced practitioner to get down to brass tacks and um, address somebody uh, who's just getting started out investing or who, who doesn't have the same level of knowledge that Jim has. And I think this, this book does, does a great job at educating uh, fundamental uh, investors, quant investors, pe people who are not advanced, who just who are just getting started. Uh, this, this is a pretty good book. So I, 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 I enjoyed the book quite, quite a bit. Um, and mo most of all, I just like that Jim, Jim is a super fun guy. Um, he hangs out on Twitter. He always responds with the, with the most appropriate 
gift uh, for for every occasion and uh, he just has such fun with with the guests on his podcast and um, so I, I just like him uh, because he's he's a cool guy so if you if you don't follow him on twitter please do uh, so jim do you want to say a few words to get started <laughs> well well thank you 10k for uh that wonderful introduction it reminds me of uh mark twain when somebody was going on and on about how great mark twain was uh, he he got up and he said well that was such a great reputation or such a great introduction i could hardly wait to get up and hear myself talk so <laughs> i will i will try not mark twain did not have your too, uh, gifts <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was pretty gifted. He was a pretty, pretty good and, and, and fun thinker. So uh, first off, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's always fun to to not have to be the host and and have uh, uh, all of the stuff uh, to keep the podcast going. I think this will be fun. Uh, as I told you before, when we were chatting before we let the audience in, I have done one uh, podcast on here on this app uh, because I like the live nature where we can let members of the audience uh, ask questions. That's missing in the traditional podcast format. Um, so I'm kind of an open book uh, and I'll tell you if I know something and more importantly, I'll tell you if I don't know it. Um, and I guess that's maybe lesson one. Uh, going through life, the, the power to say, I don't know, is almost a superpower. And it is one that most people feel very, very reluctant to utter for a lot of reasons, some of them good, some of them really, really bad. Uh, but I have found uh, that when you're able to say that, it kind of opens your mind to the idea that there is just so much more to learn and it reminds you of, you know, kind of honestly, how little you really know. And, and that spurs on your desire to, to, to learn more. And you, just to return your compliment, when I had you on my podcast, and I would, I would urge the listeners to, to listen to that one, um, uh, what caught my eye about you is not only are you an excellent um, at uh, taking apart sometimes very complicated problems, you're an outstanding teacher. And so the fact that you are doing this just for the joy of doing it is something that very much appeals to me. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Jim. Uh, yes, on, on a live podcast, I, I find myself saying, I don't know quite often. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's first mark, right? You're, you're, right. you're honest. So, so can can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself, Jim? Uh, like, how did you uh, just uh, get interested in investing? Uh, where where did you grow up? What did you study? How how was your Wall Street career like? And how did you come to found OSAM? And um, how do you spend your time these days? Sure. Uh, wow, that, that's a that's a lot of different questions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll try I'll I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I, I was very fortunate to be born into a family uh, where my grandfather had been extremely successful in the oil industry um, and at one point had the largest privately owned oil company in the world. Um, he was also an early adopter um, in the idea that long before 
folks like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates decided to give away their fortunes after they died. My grandfather did it while he was still alive, um, giving away probably 95% of his total wealth over his lifetime, something I'm extraordinarily proud of. Um, and the, the, the bit that didn't go to his kids or his um, grandkids uh, went into a foundation, which is still active today. It's called the IA O'Shaughnessy Foundation. Um, and uh, my father and my uncles and aunts were the directors of the foundation, and it would meet quarterly, normally in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I grew up and where my grandfather lived because he loved my grandmother. And even though his business was nowhere near the Midwest, uh, she said she wanted to live there, and he said, okay. Um, so when I got old enough to be invited to the adults' table, it was a big moment for me because I, I always like to listen in on their conversations. I was sitting uh, uh, to my father's right, uh, or left, rather, and my uncle, uh, who is my father's elder brother, was sitting directly across me. And, and they had, were having this very animated and at times um, uh, intense conversation about IBM, uh, international business machines. And I couldn't help but notice that virtually everything that they were talking about was about the people who ran IBM. Uh, well, you know, I think it was John Akers who was the CEO then. I'm probably wrong about that, but um, they were talking about this individual's, you know, um, his his advantages and his his deficiencies, and does he have, you know, what it takes to be able to bring IBM along, and all of these things. And and I interjected, uh, well, uh, wouldn't it be smarter to like look at IBM's financials? Um, wouldn't, wouldn't they give you a, a much greater insight into not only um, the outcome, if you will, of you, you don't even have to speculate whether the CEO is good. You can just look at the results and, you know, you can let the results tell you whether uh, he, she or they were, were, were good. And, and this was before you had any any kind of formal training or anything like that in investing or any related area you, no, you made none. this suggestion yeah, I, I i i was 16 or 17 wow uh, so my primary my primary interests were uh, girls <laughs> and uh so uh, but I, i've always been a big reader uh voracious reader um when i ran out of things to read my father brought me into the living room and and introduced me to the encyclopedia britannica and said, read this, and uh, really to get me out of his hair. Uh, but so I've been thinking a lot, you know, about why things are the way they are. And um, so that, you know, my mind at that point was just kind of like, why, 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 why? Um, and when I heard them talking about a person, it just struck me, hmm, maybe numbers would be better. And so, <laughs> They dismissed me uh, pretty much, um, and then others took part in the conversation. And if you know anything about Irish families, if there are 12 people at the table, there will be a minimum of 14 different opinions. Um, and so my uncle kind of said, well, why don't you do some homework on that and, and tell us what you find? Uh, and so I thought, that sounds like a really good idea. 
Um, so I, I went to the, you know, this is uh, for the younger people here. This is also a trip back to uh, antiquity when we actually had to go places to buy things. Um, so I went to a, uh, a stationary shop, I guess, and bought a very large uh, ledger, um, what an Excel spreadsheet looks like, but on paper. Um, and I went down to a library in St. Paul, which was called the James J. Hill Library. James J. Hill was a railroad baron uh, during the Gilded Age. And uh, like uh, Carnegie, uh, built some libraries. His were devoted to research. And, and so I brought my big paper spreadsheet and I found the S&P 500 tear sheet book, uh, which covered every company then currently in the S&P 500. Being naturally an incredibly lazy person, I realized that there was no way that I was going to go through 500 companies. So then I decided, well, what about the Dow? There's only 30 stocks in the Dow and they're all well known. And well, I'll try that. And so literally I made um, by hand uh, a list of the 30 stocks in the Dow. And then across the uh, spreadsheet, I listed all of the various ratios. So. Back then, everyone talked only pretty much about price to earnings ratio, right? Um, but I found a bunch, right? Price to sales, price to cash flow, you know, et cetera. And just did that for several years. Went down the list, uh, made my first mistake in not realizing that the editors of the Wall Street Journal get to change the Dow whenever they want. Um, and so I neglected to um, uh, look up which 30 stocks were in the Dow for every single year. They, they change, as we all know. Um, so I recognized that error and then had to go back and do that. Long story short is I found over a very short period of data, I think I might have had 12 years, um, that there seemed to be a very consistent, uh, directionally at least, uh, performance pattern uh, to stocks with certain characteristics. Um, and, um, you know, most of them seemed fairly intuitive. Uh, at that time, uh, like I said, this is 1977. Um, and the great bull market of the 80s was not yet start to start until 1982. So over the previous years, it had been pretty rotten time for Wall Street. Um, but during that time, value stocks had done very, very well. Right. Um, and you know, in that that intuitively appealed to me, right? It's like, if if I often use uh, a simple example is, you know, we're walking around Manhattan together and we go and get some food at a food truck and uh, we think it's the best food we've ever had in our life. And so we go back, we decide immediately we want to buy that food truck because, wow, it's got to be a big money maker. And so the guy's willing to sit down with us and he says, uh, OK, uh, we ask him, you know, what do you do annually in revenue? And he says one hundred thousand dollars. And we're like, OK. That's less than we thought, but, um, you know, we're such bright guys. We could pick up all sorts of ways to make this better. Uh, how much money do you want for it? And if he says, I want $10 million, you could say, uh, sorry, man, bye. Right. There's no way that we could ever make any money on that. And, and the reason I use these more pedestrian examples is because they uh, resonate with people uh, who aren't just sort of more conceptual thinkers, right? Uh, you'd never do that. You'd never do that deal because if it was your money and and they were asking such an outrageous price, 
there's no way you would sell uh, or buy that at that level of price truth revenue. Well, then you all you have to do is glance at any stock table and you'd see people were doing it and much worse uh, in stocks because they were buying like the, the, the great story. So um, I uh, that kind of started my desire uh, to to want to know more. I had a very desultory uh, trip through three different universities. The only real reason that I have a degree in economics is because I promised my mother I would get one. I was much more interested in following this independent level of research um, and girls. <laughs> um, so after I got married, I got married very young uh, at age 22. And then I had my son, Patrick, who's the podcast king um when he when i was 24 oh, don't sell yourself so short. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, i i rarely do don't worry about it um anyway uh it, by this time uh is now 1985 and all of the first computerized versions of data are coming online right. um and so i got an idea because this had been kind of a passion of mine I got the idea that I could clone any active manager and I could clone them by taking their portfolios that are, have to be public information. They have to disclose what's in their portfolio right. um, and, and not, not looking so much at the names, but looking at the factor profile of that, of that um, um, manager. And sure enough, uh, boy, you really can clone people. Uh, and you did it by putting their portfolio on a database. I used the value line uh, back then because I didn't have the money for the more fancy ones. But um, so I thought, I really got something here. So I, I founded a company called O'Shaughnessy Capital Management. That was my first company. Right. Um, and it was originally a consultant. And this was what year, Jim? Uh, this is 1987. Okay. Um, going right into the that wonderful little hiccup of October of 1987. Anyway, I, I was a consultant to large pension plans. Uh, at that time, it's, it's hard to believe now, uh, but then they didn't do the kind of analysis, pension, big pension plans, didn't do the kind of analysis that is just absolutely de rigueur today, right? But right. They, they, sometimes they didn't even know if a manager, what their style was, much less how well they had done. Um, and so what I would do is come in and build what at the time were called normal portfolios. Normal portfolios are basically uh, benchmarks on steroids because what they do is they don't compare you to the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000 value or growth. They compare you to your own factors. And um, ostensibly, uh, you would be able to get some insight as to the value or lack of value a manager was uh, bringing to the process by their buying and selling. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, so this is, this is a book. And, and this kind of brings in a, a message that I like to let people kind of think about and, and enter their mind because your outlook on things, your, how you frame things really determines what you see and, and how you act. And so I came back from one of my long walks uh, that I used to take with a tape recorder in which I had sort of dictated the outlines for this book. And I, and I looked at my wife and she goes, how was your walk? Great, great. And, and I looked at her and I goes, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and she, 
she kind of looks at me and she goes, um, so you know, honey, that in those days, if you want to write a book, you're going to have to have a publisher for that book. And they're really hard to get. And my attitude was, well, I, I don't think that's right. I think, you know, there's probably a hundred different publishers. I'll go buy a book with all of their addresses and I'll send a letter to all hundred of them um, and see if one of them wants to publish a book. This is, this, this is the kind of um, uh, attitude that says, set yourself up to be as lucky as you can. So many people would just take look at it the way my wife looked at it and say, oh, that's going to be too hard. I'm not going to do that. Um, I looked at it the other way that, you know, gosh, there's there's got to be at least one publisher who who wants to to publish my book. And so for a while, I kept all of the um, rejection letters because some of them were hilarious. But as it turned out, I got two letters from McGraw-Hill and uh, Wiley and Sons saying they wanted to publish the book. Um, so I went with McGraw-Hill for no other reason that they were the biggest uh, publisher of business books at that time. Um, and as I'm writing the book, it's called Invest Like the Best, um, I'm thinking to myself, you know what I really would love to write is like, I don't, you know, other than the academic papers at that time, you know, French and Fama were the, probably the most famous Right. Um, uh, but, um, you know, with their, with their, um, their research, uh, but, you know, very, very few non-academics read academic papers back then, at least, I think that happens more now, but I'm like, there's no guide. There's like no guide that could show the public, you know, everyone says buy stocks with the lowest PE ratios or buy the biggest growth stocks or buy stocks with the most increase in sales what what about running a time series analysis and seeing what happens when we do that right um and and this is this is yet another part of luck right it turns out that i was lucky to have picked mcgraw hill because they own compustat which was and is probably the most comprehensive database of stocks at least in the United States, um, both active stocks and most importantly, re, uh, stocks that failed or got taken over or some, uh, some went out of business in some other fashion in their research database. So there I was, a McGraw-Hill author, um, uh, asking McGraw-Hill uh, to give me access to the CompuStat. Now, now, all of that, honestly, luck. I got lucky and I was at the right publisher then we go to, okay, so you're lucky. Do you have the skill required to go and convince the people at CompuStat to give you that database, which they didn't want to give to anyone, um, right. to, to write the book? I, I convinced them to give it to me. The result was the first version of What Works on Wall Street. It, to my great surprise, became a bestseller um, because it's the first version is just tables and graphs. And, um, and, Thought you know this, I felt very good about it because who I doesn't love tables and graphs? Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, it, the the point being, my thought at the time was that not enough people to make it a business bestseller, uh, but in fact, I was wrong. Um, so I guess that was really the the start of me being recognized um, right. uh, for this for this contribution. And there's a great uh, quote by the physicist David Baum, I think, 
who says, if you don't understand a subject, the best way to learn it is to write a book about it. Um, and so that's kind of what I did with What Works. Got a lot of media attention. Um, and in fact, uh, for the first, when we had moved to active management with OCM in 1995 or six, um, the, like, we didn't make any outgoing calls. It was so new back then with these, um, you know, long data series showing how a, a collection of stocks with certain factors did that like 600 million came over OCM's transom without a single outgoing call. Um, and, and so that, that's, uh, that was how I, I got to where I am now. Uh, th thank you, Jim. That, that was such a comprehensive, beautiful answer. And r right there, you know, in, in your answer, there are so many things that, that investors can learn. So, so one of the first things that you mentioned was there were 30 stocks in the Dow, but they change from time to time. So yeah. th there is an yeah. inherent survivorship bias there. And mm -hmm. if you yep. ignore the survivorship bias, uh, that there is a very good chance that you will be misleaded, uh, mis misled into thinking that the, the returns of a strategy are, are better than uh, you, you may think that the returns are high, whereas they are not actually that high. If you um, if you remove all the data points that didn't quite make it. <laughs> and and so, so that that is such an important bias uh, for investors, at least uh, to keep in mind, if if 10 people followed a strategy and nine of them. Uh, uh, get get up on stage and talk about it, but the tenth tenth guy is dead because he played Russian roulette or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you don't really he, he, he want to emulate. Available for comment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so so that 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 is a great point uh, right there. And uh, secondly, this this whole idea of um, people profess different kinds of strategies, but. Ideally, you should try and get the data and see what happened to the things that people pro uh, profess. So just do your own research and uh, hold hold these people accountable, at least in your own mind. If someone said something, um, just go back and see how, how you would have fared if you had listened to everything they said. Uh, just uh, go through that extra bit of effort to try and understand things at a deep level. I, I, lo I love that. Uh, and the other thing that you said was uh, you don't have to clone investors uh, by replicating their portfolios exactly. You clone how they think instead of what they hold. So you, you in some sense, by discovering the factors for each investor, you, you are trying to build a model for how this investor thinks. And then you're trying to apply that process to inform your investment decisions rather than just blindly copying whatever they own or whatever they say they own on the on the 13F or um, uh, the, 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 the disclosure that they need to make. So that that is such a great point. I mean, if if you if you want to co clone Warren Buffett or something, well, Warren Buffett operates with a completely different amount of capital than than we do. He operates with a completely different set of constraints and so on. So it, it may be better to figure out how he thinks and clone that rather than just go buy whatever he has in his portfolio, which he may have bought 
you know decades ago at uh, when when the situation was completely different and when the environment was very different and and the opportunity set to us completely different and and so on so yes absolutely i mean uh, just one quick example to to the, to underline your point about uh survivorship bias in the dow um i think it was in 1930 something where AT&T replaced IBM in the Dow. Um I think it was 38 or 39. I I would have to check. Um and uh over the time period until they put IBM back in, IBM did something like increase 50-fold and AT&T doubled. Right. And and now just do the thought experiment. What would the Dow have been at had they not done that? right the dow would have been like four times higher than it had been simply right. by that one action and right. and so it's really important to know um what you know not only do you want to know uh about the change you need to know about the change if you're going to do proper research uh but it's also sometimes illuminating to look and say was that a good change um and and that gets into you know the whole broader theme that i think is even more important to study which is you know why do human beings do what we do and that is what i call human os human operating system i stole that term from brian romelli uh, so i always like to give him credit for it um and you know often as we were joking before we went live um younger people would come up to me and say so what should i study right should i take a finance degree should i to this and I'd say well if I were you and you really wanted to like get good at this I would study uh evolutionary biology and psychology because at the end of the day human beings are making the choices and then they would often say well they're not in high frequency trading and I said okay and who programmed those algorithms that do the high frequency trading <laughs> and uh you know at some point uh it might be all ai that will go Uh, that will be a I, I'll be really interested to see if that happens in my lifetime uh because of the innate um uh, contradictions that it will cause humans to face um because we really seek and crave a illusion of control and we also believe very very deeply that we're right and everyone else is wrong um of course that last one is probably should be inverted um but but the point is understand human nature what drives us um and i i call it arbitraging human nature um markets change all the time right uh, they rhyme history the names are different right um uh, like for example when radio came out it was like it was the, imagine the internet coming out almost fully formed and everyone going oh my god look at this technology i you know they they went crazy for rca uh, radio right. corporation of america and and they bid it to a price that was so close to perfection um that even if it met all of those ex, uh, you know incredibly optimistic investor uh uh benchmarks it still was too much they still were paying too much money for it and so literally ICA RCA I think hit a high in the late 20s that it didn't achieve uh for the next 50 years because 
we get overly excited about new and different. Yes. And, and, and so you can study reactions. Uh, my colleague, Jamie Catherwood does that at Investor Amnesia. And it's wonderful because it's just, we, we have not changed very much, we human beings, right? And, and so we continue to uh, commit the same errors. And I, I kind of went looking for, there's got to be a better reason for why this is true. And I stumbled upon a study uh, that's actually my pinned tweet um, the deck that I used for a talk I gave at Google. Um, uh, I stumbled upon a study that looked at uh, the investment choices of identical twins. Now we all know, of course, identical twins are literally clones of one another. They have the exact same genome. Um, they share 100% of their genes. And right. uh, to, get to, to get to the conclusion, these uh, professors who did the study, uh, estimate that something like 90 or sorry, excuse me, something like 45% of all investment errors, in other words, uh, people doing things the wrong way, are genetic and cannot be educated against. And that line just whacked me in the face and like, oh, so it's, it's a bit like we've known about many of these errors for 50 years you know they didn't call it behavioral finance back when i did my original paper um uh, horrible title using quantitative models as an offset for flawed human decision making um but it's we've known all this forever and why don't we change we don't change for lots of complicated reasons but one of them is that like we can't you can't educate in our genes. something that is Yes, that's in our genes. And, and so, um, you know, when you put all of that into your toolkit, um, you, you start to understand that, look, what's your objective? What is my objective? What's your objective as an investor? Well, typically it would be to enjoy uh, excellent returns uh, over time um, and reach a goal that you might have a variety of reasons for that goal. Maybe you're saving for your retirement or, Maybe you want to buy a, a lake house or a cottage, as the Canadians would call them. I mean, you could there'd be a bunch of stuff you might want to do. And you do have a reason, though, for the most part, which is usually established post hoc. But that's another <laughs> that's another um, uh, road that and rabbit hole we might not want to go down. But but the point is, you want to you want to do the best that you can. And so I decided uh, for myself after a particularly um, uh, uh, emotional uh, uh, bad trade that I made in 1987, right the day before the crash. Right. I, I had accumulated. I had accumulated a huge for me at that time, a huge position of puts on the OEX, which is basically a, a the same as the S and P 500. Um, and I sold them the day before because I emotionally was listening to the TV news and the radio news and, and, and the computer. I had one of those dial-up services, an early kind of Bloomberg. And everyone was saying that, you know, that crash happened. A lot of people don't know that prior to the big crash, there were a lot of mini ones. And everyone was saying, oh, it's over, it's over. And my puts were due to expire in a couple of weeks. And I freaked out. And I said, uh, I got to sell them. 
And so I sold them at a nominal profit, very small. And then the next day, uh, well, it was the weekend. And then the so next yeah, Monday. Just to interject the, there the uh, for, the, for the listeners. Um, so, so when when a stock crashes, uh, puts actually go up in in value. Oh, yes. Thank and, you. And, and Jim yeah. owned a whole bunch of these puts, which would have gone up in value big time during the crash of 1987 <laughs> uh, go, go ahead yes. so, sorry for the interruption so 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 no please uh, thank you for the additional explanation um uh, i and of course i was crushed i i uh was berating myself i was saying oh my god i can't believe that i let that emotion drive my behavior and I, I, I was right, and then I was catastrophically wrong. And, and so it all kind of, I'm a big walker, and so I think you think very well when you're taking walks. So I went out for a long, long walk, it was a tape recorder, and that's where it hit me. It's like, we're the enemy here. You know, our human emotional reaction to things is, is it just takes over because that's in our deep evolutionary programming. For most of our time here on earth, we were tribal. And by that, I mean, we were members of hunter-gatherer tribes. And what, what works uh, for being a successful individual in a hunter-gatherer tribe um, doesn't work nearly as well in an advanced society. And so I thought, okay, so I'm going to continue to make these mistakes, I think because I'm going to let my emotions override my intellect uh, because they, they're programmed to do that, right? They're programmed. We are all the descendants of the people who, when they saw that bush rustling, ran away. And, and yes. they ran away because they perceived a danger. And they said, I'm not sticking around to find out if that's the wind or it's a bear. I'm going to assume it's a bear and I'm going to run away. So, so right. we are, and there's survivorship bias there too, because uh, probably yes. it was the people who ran away who managed to propagate their genes. <laughs> the ones who stayed around it, to it, find out what happened, it, <laughs> many of them may have it, not stuck around and long. That my exact, and and that is my exact point. We are all the descendants of the cowards who ran away, <laughs> right? And, uh, and 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 so part of our genetic makeup is we are hyper vigilant about unusual and novel risks and our emotional the earliest part of our brain and programming kicks in and it overrides everything it's like uh achilles latching himself to the mask because he wanted to hear the sirens sing he had the good sense to know that he would jump overboard just like everyone else and so my first re revelation for myself is, you are not the exception here, Jim. <laughs> you are a human being. And as a human being, you will make the same mistakes as everyone else. And so that's what made me go full quant. Um, and, and full quant is essentially, you, you, you do as long uh, historical research as you can on the best data, which must include all of the companies that used to be around but are dead now. So 
much of the early research, even done by academics, did not have a research database. And they were coming out with these incredible kagers, right? Like, right. if you just buy the tiniest stocks, you're gonna, your kager is going to be a 35% a year. And like, no. If you had bought not. Google when it IPO'd. <laughs> I love that one. You know, what's so funny about it? I would go out and, and I gave probably a thousand talks, was on TV quite a bit, trying to explain the principles behind what works on Wall Street and quantitative investing. Right. And, and, and the, the immediate reaction was always, but what about Google? Um, and, and, and so I got very frustrated by that because I always said, well, we're talking about how the group of stocks with these factors perform, not about any individual name. But again, let's go back to human programming, human OS. We don't like that kind of explanation. What we like is a good story. We like the exception to the rule, not the rule. And so what about Google was, or at the time, you know, whatever the hot stock du jour was when I was giving these talks. And, and it, it, it zeroes in on something else that I've been trying to help people understand. And that is you are going to succeed far more in your life if you can train yourself to be a probabilistic and not a deterministic thinker. What's the difference? Deterministic thinking is essentially zero to or hundred, black or white, yes or no. And, and it seems to be the, 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 um, the thinking that we are programmed with when we are born. Um, and it's intuitive and it seeks cause and effect and a lot of good there's a lot of good parts about deterministic thinking but they start going to very very bad results when you apply them to complex adaptive systems so probabilistic thinking is just the opposite it is you know it Girte said uh, all 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 theory is gray but the beautiful tree of life is green. Meaning like there's all, all sorts of a host of possibilities that can happen. And what you have to try to do is train yourself to rank order them uh, based on like the, the probability of their occurring. It is not a natural way to think. And, and so I'll give you an example. Um, uh, one thing that is, I just put a tweet up about this not too long ago. It's called the uh, conjunction fallacy. And, and it's very simple. The, the probability of any event A happening, right, right, to any other event B also happening must be less than or at least equal to A happening alone. So when you do it A and B, people get that, right? They're like, oh, I think I understand that, right? But then, then take away that, don't, don't uh, speak abstractly or use A and B and give them people instead, okay? And so you say, um, okay, so Ruth went to Vassar where she studied women's studies and political science and is very active uh, in the women's movement uh, to to uh, get equal rights for, for women. Um, and that's one thing you know about her. 
Um, and then you give other profiles and tell them other things. And, and then we get back to Ruth and then we tell you, oh, there's a, there's a hundred thousand names in this barrel. We're going to pick, uh, pick two or pick one out. And, um, we're going to tell you that of these names in this barrel, uh, 90,000 are librarians and, uh, 10,000, uh, have a variety of other characteristics. So they pick Ruth out. Right. And you already know that Ruth went to Vassar and she was involved in women's studies. Uh, and then you said to them, what are the probabilities that Ruth is a librarian? And they approximate what the what the number they already told you. Here's okay. where they fall down. What are the probabilities that Ruth is a librarian who is still very active in the women's movement? Right. Everybody says that one. They pick that one. And that's wrong. The probabilities Absolutely. are overwhelmingly that Ruth is just a librarian. Right, and, and exactly. The, 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 anytime you add descriptive story data to a name, it completely negates people's ability to think probabilistically. They right. immediately go for the story. And that's again, that's due to our human OS. And so it's very difficult when when faced with what about Google, right? Because you try to explain that what you're doing with algorithmic or, or quantitative investing is essentially doing, you, you're creating base rates, batting averages, which are vital, right? So if, if, you, wanna, if you wanna become a good guy, even if you don't wanna be a, a quant, uh, develop a process that's right for you and follow it religiously. In fact, uh, AT&T did a study in the early 1970s of all their pension fund managers. And one, one, what they, when they wrote the report, they said, well, they're all different. They all look at different things. They all purport to have a different way of uh, you know, beating the market. But here are the two common characteristics that we found among all of these managers. And here's what they found. A, these managers had an easy to understand and articulate, articulate investment style process that B, they religiously adhered to, okay? So what does that tell us? It tells us that if you make a decision to buy Google because 10K Diver said that's a good stock on his podcast and, and then uh, Google goes down, you're going to A, point the finger at you, 10K Google, uh, 10K Diver, and say, oh, he did me wrong, that guy, bad example, you know, blah, blah, blah. You will not take the agency, which is another thing I find very important to be a successful investor. You have to own your agency. So the only way you can do that is not look at a single outcome, but at multiple outcomes over long periods of time and very, very different market conditions. That's how you build a base rate for how well something does and how often it does it well. And then find that process and, and overweight, obviously, those with the best base rates that make sense to you uh, in terms of their uh, veracity and their way they might work with the way you understand markets and and never look at a single outcome as a good or a bad decision because you can't know 
You honestly can't know. I could say that um, I took a flyer um, on, you know, uh, stock XYZ, right? And and it goes up. Oh, I was right. And then I reinforce all of the reasons, most of which are probably incredibly wrong for why I bought that stock. Um, and and or if it goes way down, oh, no, that wasn't my fault. That yeah. was, uh, you know, those those darn market manipulators over there. Um, and so it's just a hor- uh, my friend Annie Duke calls it resulting. Yes. And I think that's a great way to, to think about it. Um, rather than do that, just look at the full spectrum. So we have certain strategies that we've been able to test back to the late 1920s. Now, of course, that requires a footnote that's two pages long because there's there's a lot of problems with the data prior to, say, 1963 when it started to get really good. Right. Um, but understanding your limitations, uh, we will go back to um, the late 20s using the CRISP, which is the Center for Research and Security Prices maintained at the University of Chicago. Um, and and say, wow, okay, so let's take momentum. Uh, momentum is a strategy, and it doesn't matter if it's six-month momentum, 12-month momentum. There's all sorts of different ways you can, uh, you can uh, build a momentum index. Uh, it works really well, really, really well, which leads you to questions like, wait a minute, momentum shouldn't work. It's the one academics hate the most. And they hate it because if you're, Thinking about it, even for a minute, you would you would think, well, this infers that stock prices have memories, and that can't be. Well, then along comes a guy by the name of uh, uh, Mandelbrot, and and he writes uh, uh, what I think is a seminal book, and which I would recommend to everyone listening. It's called The Misbehavior of Markets. Mandelbrot uh, is famously known for his contributions to chaotic mathematic theory. Um, and this was his take on markets. It's brilliant. He he systematically dismantles the efficient market hypothesis in, in one chapter. Um, but um, w- what he introduces tends to be a little scarier, which is um, you, you, you really want to think only mostly about catastrophic risk and, and place your allocations and bets accordingly. Um, I I won't try to recite all of the insights from the book. I just recommend that people read it Um, because it also is much more the way human beings operate anyway. So find a process that works for you. doesn't have to be quant. It can be deep research like you do, right, which is great, which I admire. Um, Find a way to decide what's going to keep you in or what's going to kick you out of that particular group of stocks that you bought and then stick with it. And that sounds so boring, and it is, right? It, 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 if you're having fun investing, you're doing it wrong. Um, H.L. Mencken, who was a famous, famous crank uh, newspaper columnist in, in the 1920s and 30s, had, had this great quote, which is, what ails the truth is, is because it's mainly uncomfortable and often dull. Human minds seek something more uh, amusing, arousing, and caressing. (laughs) So, of course, what are you going to be drawn to? You're going to be drawn to the charismatic news story. You're going to be drawn to the 
to the charismatic CEO. You're going to think about the category. You're going to think about all these things. And those are not the things that you really want to be paying too much attention to. Rather, find the process, let it work, and be bored. You know, learn, take ancient Greek if you want to have something else to do. Wow. I, I, I absolutely loved that. Um, that that everything that you said that there's just so many nuggets to to unpack there uh, so so the first thing you said about arbitraging human nature uh, this this is such an important point because if if we are individual investors uh, markets change on on a day to day basis what works today the kinds of strategies that work today and tomorrow may be completely different and and so on but human nature it it changes on the scale of millennia uh, because evolution operates on a completely different time scale to what markets operate at and yeah. so if if you can find a way to arbitrage human nature rather than arbitrage some temporary glitch in the market uh, that gives you such a such a an enduring power to stay and invest for for the long haul that 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 is a great point and th- this whole idea that we are the enemy and so we have to look for systematic ways uh, a process and stick to that uh, so- something that doesn't let our emotions get in our own ways uh, that that is such a great point about investing and uh, it, and it's it's always as, as you said you know the the exception to the rule the the google uh, exception it it actually makes the rule itself harder to find because if we find a rule that works but there are a few exceptions we think oh this this rule can't be right because you know what um, that that i can see exceptions right in front of me uh, but it's it's actually uh, when you discover a rule it's usually a probabilistic rule and the, the, this is what uh, great scientists i mean galileo for example he when he discovered that Uh, for example all all objects fall at the same rate right if if you go and drop a, a, a big pebble and a small pebble from the uh, leaning tower of pisa they they will both fall at roughly the same rate but people didn't discover that rule for a long time because they assumed that heavier objects will fall faster than lighter objects simply because uh, if you take uh, and the exception of uh, objects that have high resistance air resistance like feathers and things like that they seem to fall slowly but that wasn't the rule that was the exception to the rule the the rule is all objects fall at the same uh, uh, same rate and uh, so if if you just focus on the exceptions that can actually uh, stand in the way of you discovering what the the rule is that generally works across all things so so I, i i really like that and and everything that you said about probabilistic thinking and the conjunction fallacy the the way i learned this was uh, when when you give people a very specific scenario uh, they are more likely to uh, be more alarmed by it or something like that so for example if if there is a plane and uh, say you you offer insurance uh, the, this is the example that i learned uh, this, this fallacy from so uh, let's say you go to one person and say um, okay i i'll give you insurance against this plane uh, crashing how, how much would you pay for that insurance policy uh, and you go to a second person and say i will give you insurance against this plane crashing due to a terrorist attack and how much would you pay for this insurance policy 
and people right. actually pay higher uh, when the the plane uh, uh, the, for for the policy that protects against uh, a terrorist attack, whereas the first policy covered the terrorist attack and more, whereas they they pay actually less for that insurance policy, and that that is again the the conjunction fallacy at at work. Uh, so so that that that's that's a great. Uh, uh, again, one one of the bugs uh, in in human OS. Um, so uh, the- yes, we we the, the the terrorist one is a great example uh, because it shows just an absolute misunderstanding. You, your chances of being involved in nearby a terrorist activity are so tiny. Um, even if you're traveling broadly and even if you're traveling in countries where such activity takes place, um, you're far more likely to fall in the shower and kill yourself that way. Um, and, and so people really don't understand how to apply basic probability theory. And that's partially due to the, um, how, uh, how um, good and different that story is, you know, it, it is like, boy, terrorists. And, you know, that, that immediately hooks into our system that's on, on hypervigilant alert for novel dangers. Right. Right. So, exactly. Uh, when, when, when we blame a terrorist activity, then people are going to really sit up and take notice and, and say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pay for that. Um, and you know the, the, we could do a list here, and it's it's just like the thing. Rather than do that, that's pedantic in my opinion. Uh, the thing that is better in my opinion to learn is you are not the exception. Yes, I am not the exception. I I run human OS just like everyone else that's a human, and and to think that you are um, in any way not going to fall into the same traps is delusional thinking because you know uh, I, and yet that is yet another problem with we humans uh we we tend to be horrible at self-assessment but interestingly enough we're pretty good at assessing others um the the spiritual writer tony de uh, had a wonderful line which is if if you want to know what your own faults are look at what irritates you and others <laughs> and it's it's so true and it's it's very difficult for, to get people to like understand it and and yet the the google ex- and back to by the way i wanted to make a comment about that if somebody is showing you a process right or an algorithmic investment scheme that does not have a failure rate run away they're crooks they're trying to cheat you because every honestly done test on the efficacy of a strategy, I look at it as a massive benefit because it shows you the drawdowns historically. And right. let me tell you, man, they are, some of them are terrifying. And, and it's very difficult to, to um, explain how that person will react my friend Jason Zweig has the best example of this. He says, the current way we try to assess people's tolerance for risk is to show them a picture of a snake, right? And, and they look at the picture of the snake and they go, yeah, I'm fine. That doesn't bother me at all. Oh, you have a high tolerance for risk. 
Jason says, no, 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 no. Don't show them a picture of a snake. Throw a live snake in their lap and you will see their real tolerance for risk. <laughs> right. They're going to run like hell. <laughs> so it's, it's always instructive, in my opinion, to just remind yourself, A, no, you're not an exception. B, keep your mind open for all of the mistakes you're going to probably step into because you will. Um, and then understand, even if you come up with what for you is a great um, uh, process that that you can live with, you're you're going to make you're, a certain percentage of those securities that you buy are going to go down in price. And that's the other part of this is the acceptance of like, yeah, 30 percent of the stocks that we put in market leaders value might go down. Some of them might go down a lot. Some of them might go bankrupt. Um, and and so to be a quant is to not only accept the error factor, it is to embrace the error factor. Uh, you know, anyone who thinks they're going to get 100% of their selections correct is a lunatic and like has no, that their, their, their sense of understanding in the market is, is negative. Like even the greatest investors of all time. Here's the other thing I've never met and I've had the, um, uh, opportunity and and pleasure of meeting some of the greatest investors of all time, and I've yet to meet one who didn't have a major failure somewhere in their career. And I kind of think that that's the the great filter on investors, right? Uh, because a great failure can make you do one of two things: it can make you like be broken, and I failed my fault i'm horrible i'm never going to do this again people are mocking me they're deriding me but i can't deal with it or you're going to look at that failure and say huh what can i learn here what can i learn from this so that i can apply it more broadly and then finally think like this is a directional process i love seeing you know these folks who are like yes this strategy returned 12.945% with a standard deviation of return of X. And therefore that 12.91% is what we're aiming for. Um, no, <laughs> everything's relative. And, and if it achieved a 12.91% when the market achieved a 10% return, that's probably a good strategy. If it returned a 12.91% when the market or its benchmark did 16%, that's probably not a great strategy. So you have to think that it's relative, and but then you also have to think it's just directional. Like another problem with human OS is if you really want to get somebody to commit to something, get them to publicly say they support it. People who have not understood that, you know, there's all sorts of advantages, people who maybe not have the best interests at my of yours in mind, uh, that you can take a, on a person, but getting them to publicly support something, people want congruity in themselves. Right. And if they don't see congruity, they, they like, they double down. And so you also have to be of a flexible enough mind to realize that, oh, well, I guess I need to change that. I guess we need new research on that. Um, life is movement. Like stasis is death. And so trying to find one particular thing that is the Rosetta Stone for investment results, it doesn't exist. 
there is no such thing absolutely that is such a such a great point uh, know know thyself is su- such an important thing in in investing and there's no one path to investing success and the the better you know yourself uh, the the more likely it is that you will find something that works for you a, a process a strategy that works for you yes okay um so i i wanted to get to a whole bunch of things but we didn't we didn't get to them uh, but i would <laughs> definitely like to take some questions uh, from from the audience i'm i'm sure the audience has a bunch of things they would like to ask you so let's let's just okay. go ahead and do that we we'll take the next caller uh, alex hi thank you hi jim hi yeah. alex how are you good thank you thank you for this podcast has been amazing learning um my question is how does your uh, investment process for new ideas looks like mr jim and obviously thank you um so for, for new ideas uh we spend most of our time um at osam uh we have a research team and we have an execution team um and we have some of the people who are on both both teams um but essentially um we scour my research team scours uh every new paper every new idea um some are born right in osam and uh one of the researchers will say oh have we ever looked at this and uh then uh chris meredith who currently is my co-cio and will become the full-time uh cio after i depart at the end of this year um would greenlight that and then the research team would work on it together we think that working on problems uh in a collegial way uh gets them uh studied faster and and gets um different points of view so a little bit of cognitive diversity there um our process is a bit simpler in that um we we look at the thesis yeah so maybe we should be replacing price to book with another factor because price to book doesn't take into account intangibles um and so that's an actual thing that happened um right. at osam and we wrote several papers about it and we did replace price to book um and so that's an example of a successful evolution upgrade to our our uh, approach to investing um but we have a huge great uh research graveyard um which is ideas that we thought made sense to explore but when we actually did the research found that they you know didn't add any value um and we think it's really important that you maintain that graveyard and you make it available to clients um so that they can we're big big believers in like open kimono so to speak you know here here's what we tried did work here are the here's the data as to why it didn't work um so that they can see the way our thinking unfolding um and there's always something uh new to be looking at um and most by the way most of it doesn't doesn't uh move the the needle and most of it um uh gets put gets put in the graveyard uh but that is the majority of their time now um 
And uh, we also, uh, we, there's no pride of authorship. Um, so if uh, most of us read like every academic paper that gets published, that seems reasonable. Um, and then we'll talk about, you know, have we thought about this? If we have, could we improve our thinking? Um, you know, this researcher, um, she used this particular data set or this particular way of calculating uh, EBITDA that is new. Um, and then if we find that we do, we'll do the research. If it gets put into production, it needs my approval uh, to be put into production um, and then rinse and repeat. So very, very active on a day-to-day -day basis on this type of research, but very much at odds with a traditional analyst who would, for example, spend most of his or her time um, you know, like looking at Google or Facebook, or I guess we call it meta now, um, and, and trying to make evaluations on that particular, uh, company. Um, so we're always trying to improve our process. Um, and, um, most of those changes are very evolutionary, not revolutionary. Um, because, you know, we do have sort of bedrock uh, foundational beliefs about how markets operate. Um, and uh, that's that's generally how we find most of the uh, new improvements that we bring to the quantitative process. We also do um, uh, look at other markets to see whether there's an opportunity to um, make selections in those markets using at least a quant overlay. Um, and we have looked at things from um, the art market to um, wine futures to a variety of any, you know, active auction market um, to see whether, you know, any efficacy could be added there. There is there is quite a bit of literature, not unique to OSAN, by the way, um, on uh, at least the wine futures market. Um, and then finally, we also will do big research pieces. We have a, a program called uh, OSAM Research Partners. Um, and one of our most prolific is a man who um, operates under a pseudonym. Uh, his pseudonym is Jesse Livermore. And he's on Twitter and, and uh, he's a great thinker. Um, uh, has gotten like blind offers from some of the biggest banks on Wall Street just on the power of his research. Um, and so those are those tend to be bigger uh, think pieces about why factors work. You know, are we misjudging something? His most recent one is fascinating. You'll find it uh, at his Twitter handle, which is Jesse Livermore, uh, or you can also find it at OSAM Research. Um, and then we have other uh, OSAM research partners who, for example, looked at the efficacy of using the number of patents um, a particular company has as a factor in deciding whether to invest in that company or not. You'll find that research paper up at OSAM as well. As 10K uh, uh, alluded to earlier, uh, we think that the more that we can share with people, uh, the better, um, because ultimately, um, it's it's not so much the idea that needs to be hidden. Uh, it's the understanding that, um, you know, again, arbitraging human nature. So we tend to look 
for things that are not mathematical anomalies, those disappear very quickly. As a matter of fact, early in my career, that happened to one of my early trading methodologies. Um, I thought I was God's gift to options trading. And then some pesky academic published a paper about the strategy I was using and poof, it went away. So those are, those are arbitrage type mathematical anomalies. They go away the minute you hear about them. Um, these more human um, directional uh, evolutionary style uh, ideas don't go away. So you can talk about them all day long. Does that, does that answer your question, Alex? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for such a great answer. Just like to well, add you, to that. Thank I, for, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 please. It's your show. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I love the phrase research graveyard. Uh, that, that, that is such a great uh, phrase simply because it, it indicates that w- you have beautiful theories when you start out and you have promising ideas or at least ideas that you think are promising. But then uh, yeah. when you actually do the research, uh, you should be willing to, if, if the evidence doesn't corroborate the idea or the theory, you should be willing to abandon the theory and then search for uh, uh, search for a better. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's like every hero I have. One of them is is uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, and and he has a great quote that goes along the lines of, "No matter how beautiful your theory is, no matter how much you are committed to it, if it uh, if the facts disprove it, it's wrong, and it's just right. that simple." <laughs> exactly. And and so <laughs> the the ability to be flexible about that, and you know that again comes down to habituating um, things like humility. Um, and I don't mean humility like the aw shucks kind of humility. I mean humility in understanding that we know so little about this incredible universe we live in. And like, you've got to understand that. And yet you've got to continue to seek and realize, okay, I'll be wrong a lot, but maybe I'll learn things uh, from the things I'm wrong about. Um, and and being willing to like so I, i've also endeavored to make all of our thesis around investing testable if if you can't test something if it's not falsifiable it is not a valid hypothesis or thesis it's a belief and absolutely you, it's it's and, one of those things that is people, not even false because it's not testable right, right. Exactly. That's not even wrong. Uh, exactly. One of the, yeah, the, the physicists uh, said. So, you know, that's hard, right? Because people, we're, we're also very much driven and tuned into our belief systems. And um, we, we need to understand that we all are wearing reality goggles. Um, and your goggles might be very, very different than mine. Uh, you know, uh, different authors call them reality tunnels, but but that's very true. And and so uh, to to have some humility in the face of understanding that that is true um, leaves you open to understanding things that if you don't have that humility, you'll never be able to see. Yes, um, absolutely. Because you know, I'm right. I'm right. You know, it's often. 
on Twitter, you'll see the people with the, you know, this, this is a hill I'll die on. And, yes. and I always respond uh, that I prefer General George Patton's uh, way of looking at this. And I, I would much rather make the other poor dumb bastard die on his hill than die on mine. <laughs> so like, you, you gotta, you've got to just be willing and have flexible uh, ways of looking at the world, which gets us back to probabilistic thinking as opposed to deterministic. And, and, but I, I say that with the full knowledge that it's really hard. It's very hard to train yourself to think that way because it is not intuitive, right? Um, so if you look at the latest research um, uh, around um, things like uh, babies learning to talk, for example, that is in the wetware, that's in the programming. Um, you drop a child from anywhere, born anywhere in the world into an environment and it could not be their native environment. Let's say a child who was born in America is is put with a family in Beijing. Um, he's or she is going to grow up pe uh, speaking perfect Mandarin. Exactly, with no accent or anything like that. Yes, absolutely. With no accent. Yep, right. And that means what can we infer? We can infer that the algorithm for acquiring language is part of our genetic code. Now, is reading part of our genetic code? Not so likely. Because look at how long it, it takes us to teach young children how to read. Right. That requires effort. That requires instruction. And it's the same thing with probabilistic thinking versus deterministic thinking. Deterministic thinking is far more intuitive and um, on the face of it makes far more sense. Um, and probabilistic thinking is not and it's often counterintuitive and you really have to teach yourself how to do it and it it's a bummer <laughs> because it takes a long time and and yet i do believe that if you're able to do so your your mental model will be far more accurate uh, as to the map of reality than the one that's done deterministically uh, yes, absolutely. So I love that you quoted uh, Richard Feynman in, in this um, reply. And so uh, I, I was going to quote this biologist, uh, Thomas Huxley, and he, he said, mm. the great tragedy of science is the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's really funny is that, like we were talking about it earlier, um, these the the studies um, about algorithmic um, uh, decision making versus intuitive clinical decision making that's humans going with their gut right it's not just Wall Street that where it works it works everywhere so if you're looking at parole boards trying to determine the best way to decide who to parole if you're looking at universities trying to decide what's the best way to admit a student to the university horse handicappers. I mean, it's just the list is endless. And, and um, it works everywhere. And, yes, absolutely. And the reason it works, the reason it works, I think, is because of the utter consistency of the application of the rule. So, so humans are far more interesting. But we, 
I have a really hard time, uh, which is affected, by the way, by whether we're hungry or not, whether we slept well the night before or not, whether we got in a fight with our spouse the night before or not. So all of these variables are, are very difficult to ascertain at that moment. And one person who might have been making excellent decisions can crumble. And then you learn later that, you know, his child was sick and he was terrified about what was going on. And the child recovered, uh, but that really took a lot out of him emotionally. So, so the algorithmic approach is not superior because the, the uh, algorithm is superior. It's really not. It's designed by us, right? And it's designed by very straightforward um, uh, research and, and everything else. The, the magic there is that it is applied every single time. Yes, absolutely. And Consistent application. That, and, and also, hopefully, it's yeah. designed by us when we are thinking straight. And it is applied by us when we are not <laughs> thinking straight. Hopefully. Exactly. I love that. I love that. That's great. That's really wonderful. <laughs> Right. And, and I love the way you take inspiration from so many different scientists. Um, so so you, you already mentioned uh, two scientists here, uh, Richard Feynman and also Mandelbrot. And on, on the podcast, Infinite Loops, uh, you often say that Claude Shannon is one of your heroes and, and so on. So, uh, yes. So uh, my question is, uh, well, first, can, can we get a list of all your other heroes, so we know uh, some some things to read. About. <laughs> and and secondly, uh, how does uh, how do scientific principles, the principles uh, on which science has been based on, and the way it, the scientific method and how science advances, how how do those principles in general uh, apply to to investing? That's a great question. Um, if you read my book, you'll see that I have written that I have endeavored to take as close to a scientific method approach to the research as I could. Um, of course, um, you know, particles don't have feelings, humans do. Um, and so uh, it can only go take you so far. But I am a massive fan of the scientific method because essentially uh, the enlightenment uh, started us on this path to this incredible world that we live in today. And we have to remind ourselves that uh, prior to the scientific method being codified during the Enlightenment, um, everything was virtually because the gods did it um, and or uh, an appeal to authority, which the authority was usually based on a religion which does, which is based on beliefs that are not falsifiable, and so the scientific method um, is is the utter opposite of certainty. It embraces uncertainty. It welcomes uncertainty, and and we've had a problem of late, I think, with many people. And I guess they call it scientism. Um, have sort of turned it into a religion. Um, and when, whenever you hear somebody say the science is settled, you can pretty much make the prediction that that person knows absolutely nothing about the scientific method. Science exactly. is never settled. 
Science is, science is always pending uh, further evidence. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's what makes it so great. And like Ptolemy, right? The, the, the Ptolemic uh, system of astronomy, absolutely dead wrong. Dead wrong about a bunch of stuff, but it had some useful things for ship captains because it helped them as flawed as it was, uh, it helped them navigate better using the stars. So you could say, yes, the Ptolemic uh, system of astronomy was completely and laughably wrong, but it was useful. Yes. And then it, it led kind of stepping stone-like to the more modern Coper Copernican uh, understanding. And what you found and what you will almost always find, because again, we're back to human nature, People do not like those kinds of changes. They hate them, especially the former experts that lorded over the field. So um, it wasn't just other science. It wasn't just the church who hated Galileo. It was other scientists too, right. because they had established all their bona fides in in the old way of understanding things. And that's what led Max Planck to say, you know, Progress happens one funeral at a time. Uh, you know, you, you build up this body of evidence that seems quite reasonable. Um, and then along comes another scientist who says, yeah, but, and it shows that it's not. We're human beings. We're emotional creatures. I, I don't know of many people who would enjoy being removed from their position of prestige and authority at a leading university uh by some arp start who has a better theory and so again you know there's a great little movie about david Baum, who i also mentioned who came up with the hidden variables theory um in quantum and uh literally um j robert robert oppenheimer who was the head of the manhattan project and his colleagues decided that they were going to completely ignore that paper because of reasons that had nothing to do with science. They were worried that, uh, uh, that he, uh, Bon, was a member of the Communist Party. And so you have these hysterical human reactions to things. Right. And, and, and so, you know, we have records of Oppenheimer writing to his colleagues uh, saying, even if this prove, even if hidden variables is proven to be correct, we will continue to ignore him. So this is coming from like the people, the high priests of the scientific method. You can right. only imagine what like happens in markets and, and things like that. So I think that the, the, the essence of the scientific method is, is, is just a wonderful um, rubric to, to test your ideas on. And like you're, you're probably wrong. And that's okay, because what you've got to do, I mean, how do you ever expand your knowledge base if you don't put these things to the test and say, well, that was dumb, that didn't work. <laughs> and so thus my admiration for the true scientific method where, where nothing is certain, nothing is settled. And imagine if, if um, it's 1900 and uh, Einstein is saying, hey guys, uh, you know, this Newtonian stuff? Yeah, it works on some things, but uh, check this out. Um, 
he the the reaction of scientists back then was they hated him and it was very controversial and so you know buckminster fuller is another guy i really admire uh, right. he had this notion of of humans are take a while to get tuned into something um and if you're not tuned into something you it's basically blind you cannot see it and the example that fuller uses is the microscopic world um when when we discovered that there was this entire world that we didn't know anything about uh it shocked us and the majority of people refused to accept it uh because they weren't tuned into it and over time there's always this societal leg that allows greater and greater portions of society to tune into things and and then they they get it and they go oh this is cool then they get tuned in right so it's it's hard you you don't it's a natural human reaction to yes absolutely to say, in fact einstein yeah, yeah, shattered this, the world with his uh, theory of relativity and the photoelectric effect and all that and people didn't uh, people took a while to warm up to that idea but then later in life einstein himself fell prey to the same kind of uh, human os bug in that he just rejected quantum mechanics without looking at it too much he he just said uh, no god does not play dice because quantum mechanics was a probabilistic yeah. thing and not a deterministic yeah world so so I, i guess it comes back to your point that you are not the exception and sci- scientists are not the exception either but they they just have a process that helps them uh, make progress yeah. over time exactly true and that it's the process here we are at process again right um you know i uh, edward deming the kind of the father of the uh, procedural um logistical type ways of working uh said if you cannot define what what you are doing as a process you do not know what you are doing <laughs> and you know that's a little catty but i i i think there's a lot of truth in it so look we we i am uh incredibly optimistic about the place we are in society right now um in terms of what can happen over the next 10 to 20 years uh because of all of these um new um tools that are probably more effective than anything we've ever had in human history the internet being the obvious one um it's the greatest amplifier in human history and it has helped collapse time space geography so that um a whole host of very bright people who in the past would go unnoticed uh we're going to notice them now uh because time space geography don't mean anything anymore and people this is an idea that simple concept um to me is so um incredibly uh appealing because we 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 have uh now the ability to see talent everywhere and um like you know if you were if you were born in um uh Alabama in the United States on a farm and yet you had a incredible and killer uh ability to fix engines um the chances that you were going to migrate let's put it back in say 1920 uh the chances that you were going to migrate to somewhere where that talent could actually be 
fully realized, probably really low. Right. Um, now that doesn't mean that doesn't happen. It does happen, but it happens quite uh, rarely in those types of environments where you know geography and things like that are make a big difference. Then move it. Let's say you're born in Nairobi, um, and you are a, a mathematician uh, uh, of the highest caliber. Uh, Pre-internet, tough dice, man. Yes. Um, post-internet, post-internet, the world is your oyster. And and so I am just absolutely excited about all of the all of the creativity. And when I say creativity, some people think that oh, you're talking about art. No, entrepreneurs are creatives. So are inventors of processes that uh, add to human. Uh, uh, comfort or or um, ability to to do things, and so I think I think the world we're going into um, has many many bright prospects. It's why we're doing the series, The Great Reshuffle, um, because we really think that uh, what a time to be alive, man. I'm uh, I I think you young folks, uh, it's pretty pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. So um, the the great reshuffle uh, is uh, is a recurring theme on on the Infinite Loops podcast, and um, so, yeah. so on on almost every single episode, uh, Jim Jim brings it up and shares some some new nugget uh, of how how the internet is going to change the way we are currently doing things. Um, so so uh, one of the early consequences is that middlemen uh, become irrelevant over time, and so, so it's just if if you haven't listened to uh, Infinite Loops, uh, just go and listen to some of the latest episodes. And almost every single episode will mention uh, something about the Great Reshuffle and some consequence that it it's going to have. Uh, that I, I think these observations just shed so, so much of light. And m- many of these consequences are non-obvious. And it was only by listening to Jim's guests and Jim, that I started to appreciate uh, how just what a seismic shift we we are going through right now. And 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 you yourself are an excellent example of this. Um, you are a truly talented um, researcher, and you're a marvelous teacher. And you had a platform that 25 years ago you wouldn't have had. And you know, I, I, you have what, 300,000 followers on Twitter and you're providing an, an actual good and people are getting that for free. And like, if you tried to convince somebody 30 years ago that that was a possibility, they would laugh in your face. And, and so we're also in a period where talented people like you now have a lever that you can use very, very effectively um, and to to help, you know, in your case, you're doing it to help other people, uh, other people understand the ways that you should look at things and in investing. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this lever can be used. They're not all good, by the way. Yes. And we try to cover, um, you know, the, the bad parts as well and how we might mitigate those. Um, but like, I'm just, I am, I am, uh, absolutely gobsmacked by the possibilities that simply did not exist like when i was born 
uh, or even when I was a young adult. Um, like if you look at how long it took me to start my first company, O'Shaughnessy Capital Management, it was all in, in, in geographic space. I had to go to the SEC and show myself and show my license and do it and file all the paperwork because it was paperwork. Um, right. Like it took months. And like, if you wanted to start a company right after this podcast, 10K, you could, and it would be up and running tomorrow. And like, people don't understand the, the ability with these tools that we have is just really amazing. And like all tools, they're just tools. And like you, 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 the reason you have so many followers and so many people think so highly of you is that you're doing it in public and, and you have the courage to put your stuff out there. And, you know, used to be you couldn't do that even if you wanted to, right? Now, the, there is a roadblock for a lot of talented people, and that is it takes courage to put your work out into the marketplace. And I applaud yeah. yours. And, you know, you, they, you're going to always have somebody who doesn't like you um, and not you, but more <laughs> people like me. And, and, and that's okay. Oh, right? everybody loves you, Jim. You just, you, oh, yeah. No, famous last words. <laughs> well, uh, so we, we've been at this for about uh, an, an hour and 40 minutes. So let, let, let me end this by asking uh, one last question, which is I want to turn the tables on you. And so you, you ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Uh, so if, if suppose I make you the dictator of the world, you, you can't kill anyone, but you can incept two ideas in people's minds. So tomorrow when everybody wakes up, they are going to say, uh, okay, I thought of these two ideas myself. You have that power to incept people with two ideas. So what, what two ideas are you going with, Jim? Hoisted by my own petard. Um, okay. So the, the first thing that I would incept in people is that they need to try to interact with other people as if they were interacting with themselves. I guess we call that the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. Respect others as you would like to be respected. And be open to the idea that their ideas might in fact be right. And some of your ideas might be wrong. And rather than see them as an adversary, see them as an ally who's going to help you learn and become a better thinker and person. I guess the second one that I would incept is be afraid and do it anyway. Fear, fear stops so many people from doing things in their life that they have a unique gift to do. And everybody's afraid. You know, me, you, everybody. People who say they're not are lying. And and so courage, in my opinion, is being afraid and doing it anyway. Because 
that's the only way that you can understand, you know, how much your ideas or or what you have to offer um, uh, are are going to be helpful, are going to be additive. And and if if we lived in a world where everyone woke up in the morning and thought, you know what, I'm really afraid to um, tell that girl I love her. Or I'm really afraid uh, that to tell my parents that I don't want to be an accountant. I I, I want to be a, 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 an artist. Um, if they decided, you know what, uh, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. Life, I think, would be turn out so much better for so many people. Um, the probabilities would suggest that that would be a, a, a great way to let people really tune in on, on their unique gifts um, and insights. And what a world. Wow. If people weren't afraid and, and they contributed, um, uh, I just think we would have a materially different and better world. That, that, that is a great point. So, so the, the Internet has collapsed um, or is in the process of collapsing space and time but as you say that fear is still part of human os and so to take advantage of this collapsing uh, it is sort of up to us to grab the bat and then head out into the arena right so that 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 is such a great point yeah teddy roosevelt has a has a good piece on that um called in the I, well it's about to, I, I, I maybe it's not he who wrote it I can't remember who wrote it it's called in the arena I think it is Teddy absolutely um, and and like the uh, the codicil that I would add to that one is especially for the young people listening um, when when you think that you're worried about what other people are thinking about what you're doing or saying uh, when you get older you realize that other people probably aren't thinking about you at all and they're thinking about themselves and and that's another part of human os and and thus when you know that boy if you know that when you're young the things you'll be able to do because like you know we're, we we all have the same basic coding and if you can uncover even bits of of that code uh you, you'll be able to do things in a in a way like doing it even though you're afraid um, and man, you're just gonna have a much better life. W- wonderful points, Jim. Thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on the podcast and talking to us and enlightening us with so many different nuggets. Uh, I, I, I think it was super useful. I, I really enjoyed having you on. And um, for, for those who are listening, uh, if you haven't followed, if you, if you don't follow Jim on Twitter, please go and follow him. He's just great. I, I love that every, every morning you, you you post two quotes from some uh, somebody, th- two thought-provoking quotes from someone. And just those quotes yeah. make it w- worth it to, to follow you on, on Twitter. Uh, so Thank you. I, I, I think you, you, you have a bot set up to do that, right? Because every morning at exactly <laughs> 4 a.m. the quotes go. Six, uh, so, so. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they are, they are, they are scheduled tweets. I do yes. schedule them, but uh, they, they are scheduled. Yes. Um, so, so j- just those quotes, uh, if, if nothing else, make make it worth 
uh, following <laughs> you and uh, jim jim just reads so much and shares so much of what he reads that i i've discovered so many great newsletters and so many great authors and so many uh, great rabbit holes to dive into just by following jim and if you don't listen to infinite loops i, I suggest add add that to your uh, podcast uh, player it's it's a wonderful podcast it's not just about investing uh, although a, a large part of it is but jim just talks to so many different people in so many diverse fields it it, it just completely expands your your world view um, and there are such great guests on the podcast and uh, if if you haven't read jim's book please please go ahead and read it what what works on wall street that that is a lovely book and th- thank you so much jim for uh, uh, coming on the show uh, i really appreciate it and th- thank you. uh it's, it's been my pleasure thank thank you for having me on thank you uh, see you all next sunday okay. bye 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 bye